0: And we should not mention the case where a husband finds blemishes in his new bride. And we saw that the burden of proof changes depending on what stage of the marriage they're in. If the bride is still in her father's house, that means after Kiddushin, but before Nisuin, then the burden of proof is on the father to prove that these blemishes came upon her after the Kiddushin. At the time of Kiddushin, she didn't have them, and therefore the Kiddushin is valid, he committed to the Ketubah, and it's his loss. Whereas, if he finds the uh, blemishes after uh, the Nisuin in the husband's house, then it's up to the husband to prove that these occurred, these blemishes occurred before kiddushin, and therefore it was a mekach ta'ut. Now, although the Mishnah says that these are two different cases in the father's house or husband's house. Now, the Gemana nevertheless presented these two clauses as being in contradiction to one another, uh, perhaps because it wasn't clear what, did, what would be the difference if it's found in the father's house or a husband's house. Well, we already saw two responses, two explanations of the Mishnah, and now we're going to see a third and last one amar Resha Manele, in the Resha where the blemishes are found while she is still in her father's house. That is similar to uh, someone saying, "I have a uh, my father has a hundred dinar in your possession. In other words, because she's still in her father's house. So uh, the collection of the kitubah, uh, should he have to pay a kitubah at that point, would go to the father. So the father is, uh, in this case, the one that is, would be collecting this debt. Because the father is collecting the debt, therefore, the woman's presumptive status, her chazaka of chazakat gufa, The presumptive status of her body, that she has no blemishes until proven otherwise, does not apply because she is not the uh, plaintiff. She is not the other litigant, but rather it's the father. And so, therefore, uh, the father's body has nothing to do with her body. And so, therefore, the father is the one that has to prove that uh, the blemishes happened. Uh, before, uh, happened after the Kiddushin. Whereas the Sefa, where she is now already married, in this case, the pep marriage contract, the Kituva, will be paid to the bride herself. She is the one that is collecting, the money is owed to her. And therefore, her bodily presumptive status of being without blemish is, what is the status quo and therefore it's up to the husband to prove that no, these, happened, uh, these, these blemishes happened before the Kiddushin against that Chazakah. So Rav Hashem is giving a nice clean explanation for the difference between when it's in her father's house and her husband's house. Um, it has to do with who is the one who is owed the money. Okay, that's Avasheh's explanation. We have a challenge to it. Yitibar avachah vredar avya l'rav asheh. Modeh rebimeir b'mo'min ha-dehuyin ima. imah The question is from a Brayta, Baraita that uh, adds a qualification to the Bimeir's opinion. Bimeir was the one that presented the whole beginning, the first two cases of our Mishnah, this whole distinction between father's house and husband's house, and he says even Bimeir would agree. That the if it's a a type of blemish that would generally come from her father's house. In other words, something that is like a birth defect, some kind of limb that is most likely as, did not develop afterwards, but most likely came from before the kiddushin. That in that case, the father would have to bring the proof no matter what. Even after the Nisuin, it would still be up to the father to bring the proof. That's what the Braita says. And now here's the question. You just said that once she's in the father, once she's in her husband's house, then it's like she is collecting the debt. If she's collecting the debt, then she should have a chazkat goof uh, that she has no blemish until the husband proves otherwise. Why should it make a difference what type of blemish it is? Why how come that chazaka doesn't prevail? Ravashi, you said there is a chazaka, so why can we don't say there there is a chazaka and therefore? The husband has to prove it. Why is we make any exception where the father would have to prove it? And the answer is: <laughs> uh, We're talking about what kind of, what type of blemish? One that would be so clearly uh, that so clear that it came from before the Kiddushin, like if she has an extra toe. Nobody grows an extra toe. It's obvious that she was born with the extra toe, and therefore uh, she doesn't have any, the Chazakah has no relevance, she has no Chazakah that she once did not have a blemish, and that's why it would be up to the father to prove that uh once upon a time she didn't have an extra toe now we ask (laughs) if this is if badaisa is talking about where she has an extra toe what kind of proof could the father possibly bring right i mean this is basically impossible for her to have grown this toe afterwards. So, uh, why, how could it be talking about such a case? And the answer is No, he's not bringing proof that she, that she didn't have it before and that she grew it after the Kidushin. But rather, he, the father is going to bring a proof that he saw, the husband saw the extra toe and he was okay with it. He'll say, you know, remember that time when she was wearing sandals and you noticed the toe and you said, oh, well, that's so good for you can count to six on one foot. Right? So you noticed it and therefore you were okay with it. That's the kind of proof that he could bring. And so that is an answer to for, uh, for Rav Ashe. All right, good. Now we have a next a statement of Shimoel, and he's going to compare a case in and in, in, uh, laws of acquisitions to uh, our Mishnah. That's how it's related. Para. Yes, two people, you have two people making an exchange. Uh, one owns a cow, one owns a donkey, and they want to barter one for the other. In order to do a barter, you have to do some action uh, in order to uh, effectuate the exchange. Um, and it can be done by either party uh, pulling on, the animal that he is going to acquire. So, the in this case, first the one who, who what is the owner of the donkey pulls the cow, and thereby he. Uh, now owns the cow. And uh, at the same time, the owner of the cow will now own the donkey, even if he doesn't do anything. In other words, uh, only one of the sides has to actually do an action and then automatically the other side, the other party gets their acquisition at the very same time. And later on, he'll go and pick it up. Okay, good. So the owner of the donkey now pulled the cow. And so the owner of the cow just has to go and pick up what's already his. But, When the owner of the cow goes to pull on his donkey and take it, he finds that it's dead wherever it is. Assume it's in the courtyard of the owner, original owner of the donkey. And it is dead. So now the question is, when did it die? if it died after the pulling of the cow, well then it's the loss of the owner of the cow, because at the time of exchange it was alive and it died afterwards. So it's his loss and the owner of the donkey keeps the cow. On the other hand, if it died, if the donkey died before the exchange, well then that—that at the time of the exchange there was nothing to exchange. And so when the owner of the donkey pulled the cow, he pulled something but there was no exchange and so the exchange is null and void and the owner of the cow can go reclaim his cow so who's right or who has to upon whom is the burden of the proof and the answer is the owner of the donkey has to bring a proof that his donkey was alive at the time when the um, uh, when he pulled on the cow. Okay, why is the burden of proof on him? There's a lot of explanations among the Dishonim. A basic one is that uh, we'll go by the original status quo uh, until proven otherwise. The original status quo is that the owner of the cow had the cow, the owner of the donkey had the donkey, and so if the owner of the donkey wants to prove that this cow does, but does in fact belong to him, then he, then he has to prove that the donkey was alive when he took it. Otherwise, his taking is null and void, um, and uh, he just pulled, he just pulled someone else's uh, cow, which has no meaning. Okay, something like that. But whatever the reason is, here's the main point: vetana tuna kala, and this is Rav the name of Shemuel. Quoted, uh, quoted this Bada'ita and then added that the Tana of this Mishnah also taught the law of the Kala. In other words, this law, regarding the burden of proof, is equivalent to the law of the bride, and the burden of proof in our Mishnah. That's all he said. Now the Gemara is going to ask, which clause of our Mishnah is it? Are we comparing this to He Kala Ilema? if it's talking about the first clause when the bride is still in her father's house uh, which makes some sense because here just like the donkey is still in its original owner's house and he has to bring the proof so too in the first clause the bride, not that we're comparing the donkeys and brides, you know, literally, but just for legal purposes. So to hear the bride is still in her original so-called owner's house, in her father's house, and therefore the father is the one that has to bring the proof. So that would be a comparison. where We ask, are these really comparable? But the consequences are different. In our Mishnah here in, uh, in Ketubot, the father is going to bring a proof and he's going to extract the money of the Ketubah from the husband. So this is much stronger, whereas here the, the owner of the um, donkey will bring proof and he will just maintain the cow that he already has in his possession, which is a lower level of proof. Uh, so these are not comparable. Extracting money that's in someone else's uh, hands is much stronger, that you need much more than uh, just keeping things where they are. And so these these two cases really are not comparable. So therefore, let's try again. It's, we're actually going to compare it to the second clause when she is already in her in-laws' house, in her husband's house after the marriage. but this is these cases are also different. baal lele bide. In that case the uh husband the the case of Amishnah here uh, the husband has to bring a proof that's because it's in a husband's house. The husband brings a proof and by there, thereby he undoes the uh, presumption in favor of the father the, presum- the presumption that her her body had no uh, had no blemishes until proven otherwise, so he has to bring a proof in order to undo that presumption. But in this case, uh, here with the ox, with the donkey, Here we're requiring the owner of the donkey to bring a proof in order to maintain the status quo, and the status quo is that he has the cow in his possession. Uh, so maybe why should he have to bring a proof to proof to support the chazaka that he already has? So these cases are not comparable. So now we're stuck because we tried the first clause, we tried the second clause. So the answer is we're going to go back to the first clause. Amar of Nachman Kala Abiha Ul Kidushin. In fact we are comparing it to the first clause of uh, when the bride is still in her father's house, just like the dungeon is still in uh, in the farm of the donkey's original owner and that what you asked wait a second aren't you trying to extract the Kitubah money from the husband, and that's not comparable to the case of the donkey where we are leaving the cow where it is. We'll answer to that, ul-kidushin, we're not talking about the kitubah payment, but rather the original kiddushin money that the husband gave to the father. And that's uh, what we're talking about, that the father currently has it, and the father wants to prove that he can keep that money, and that's why it would be the same uh, if he would, was not able to prove it. Then the husband could come and say, hey, listen, this whole kiddushin was mekartaot, and I want the ring back, right? Does he have a right to take the ring back? So the father is going to say, no, I want to prove that the blemish happened after the kiddushin, and therefore I want to keep that ring. So in both cases, the donkey and the kiddushin, they're keeping what is already in their hands. All right, so that's a good answer. And now this answer: aliba There is, by the way, another machloket regarding uh, the kiddushin money. Uh, is it given to permanently or to be can it be returned if there is something? If there is a you know, if they get divorced, should it be returned? So don't say that this will. This answer is true only for the one who says in general that the kiddushin money was not given with an understanding that it would be lost permanently, uh, but rather that it would it can be returned. Uh, even according to the other opinion that says, once the husband gives the Kiddushin money to his wife or to his father-in-law, then that's it, it's gone, and he's not going to get it back after they get divorced. That's only true if they were for sure married, if the Kiddushin for sure was valid. Then he loses it forever, even if they get divorced. But if it's a mistaken kiddushin and the whole kiddushin was no good to begin with, then if the father can bring a proof that the kiddushin was was valid and the and the blemish happened after, he can keep the uh, money. But if not, then he will have to return the ring back to the husband. And so uh, this answer works according to both opinions. We're now going to challenge Shimuel's ruling from a baraita. Again, Shimuel's ruling is that the owner of the donkey has to bring proof that his donkey was alive at the time that Uh, he the owner of the donkey pulled the cow Uh, we should conceptualize this case as as if the the merchandise is the donkey and the cow in a way is the payment for it uh, because the pulling is done on the on the cow so the cow is affecting the exchange exchange that he's receiving his payment uh, for selling the donkey so the seller the owner of the of the donkey is here considered the seller um, that will be parallel to the following case. A cow has many stomachs, and one of them is called the one that has many cups because it looks like a lot of cups one inside the other. Uh, this is one of the stomachs that it uh, goes and chews, uh, first chews, and it goes in there and it's called turns into cuds, and then it rechews it. Okay, so this stomach. Um, has very thick walls, and they hear the question about a terefa. If you found, if they do shechetah, and they find a needle uh, within the thickness of that stomach, that second stomach, misad echad keshera, if the needle on, only in, goes in on one side but doesn't come out the other side, then it's kosher because it's not totally perforated, that animal can live. Adin terefa, but if it goes all the way through the stomach, this needle, then it's a terefa because that animal will not live. Now, dam If we find that there is some blood on the needle, then congealed blood on a needle, then we know that that uh, um, needle went in before the shechita, so that's no good. But if there's no congealed blood on the needle, then we know that the needle actually entered during the processing, after the slaughter. And so that means it's fine, uh, be kosher. Here's Here's the clause that we need. Uh, If there's a scab over the wound where the needle went in, then that means the needle entered into the stomach at least three days before, because it takes three days for a scab to heal. But if there's no scab, then here's why this makes a difference. We're assuming that the butcher bought this animal from the farmer three days before he butchered it. Therefore, if there is a scab, then you know that this animal was a terefa before the butcher bought it. So the butcher can go back to the farmer and say, You sold me a terefa! This is a bad uh, sale. Give me my money back. That is for sure. But the question is, if there's no scab, on uh, on top of that uh, perforation, then we're not sure, did, was, did he sell him a terefa, or did he not sell him a terefa? So in that case, whoever is extracting money, the money, he has to bring the proof for his side. Uh, and so here's one side of it. Let's assume that he paid, I guess it's, it's more reasonable to assume that the butcher paid for it and received the... Um, received the animal uh, then it would be the um, butcher who wants to get his money back so the butcher will have to bring a proof that the uh, that the needle was already there when he bought the animal. So he has to bring a proof and then he can extract it. So here it's the buyer that needs to bring a proof. And that's the question. According to Shemuel, it's the owner of the animal, the seller, the owner of the donkey, who has to bring a proof. So uh, here too, why don't we say that it's the farmer who originally owned this animal that has to bring a proof. So that's the question here's an answer Now we're talking about a case where the far, where the butcher did not pay for it he took the animal uh and he said i'll pay for it i'll pay for it later and then it turns out to be a terefa so then the butcher says i'm not paying unless the farmer the original owner proves that, in fact, when he sold it to him, it was kosher. So now the two cases are parallel. It's the original owner of the animal in both cases, who is, who is the seller, who has to bring the proof. But we say this is not a good uh, explanation of the baraita limitation on the baraita because my pasca, look, it said without qualification. It doesn't say which way, this way or that way. right? The baraita ends. It sounds like both ways. It doesn't say all necessarily that it was not paid for yet. So therefore, we're going to offer a new version of Shemuel's statement. The version that we've been dealing with this whole time was by his student, Rav Yehuda. But here's another version. His brother, Rami, the brother of Yehuda, came. He said, don't listen to the rules that my brother Yehuda said in the name of Shemuel. I also learned under Shemuel. And here is the correct version. Whoever, uh, where, where, in whoever's domain, the uncertainty came into being, that he is the one that has to bring the proof, and uh, therefore, in the case of the donkey and the cow, it would be the not the owner of the donkey, but the owner of the cow who has to bring a proof that at the time that he that he uh, that the other guy pulled the cow. Um that the um uh, donkey was already already dead uh, that's uh, that 's that's called birshuta. It was happening there in his domain in the in the owner of the cow 's domain as he gave over his cow so it 's actually the buyer that has to bring the proof, and therefore here also uh, um, uh, 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 there, the rest of that statement of, Yehu- of Shemuel was "vetana tuna kala," and also the just the misht, uh, Tana taught also regarding kala. That would be the same thing. It's whoever, wherever the domain is um, when the doubt arises that's who has to bring a proof and that actually fits perfectly with the Mishnah if the woman is in the father's house the father has to bring a proof if the woman is in the husband's house then the husband has to bring a proof so we have no problem with that Mishnah so that so, so far reads more smoothly and then in the case of Machat we're going to ask the question again and see how it fits we're going to end up giving the opposite answer uh, so we'll bring that whole case now. And remember, according to this version, it's the uh, it's the buyer uh, that has to bring the proof, right? The owner of the cow is the buyer, and here also. So if we're talking about a case where he, the buyer did not pay for it yet. And so the, uh, uh, therefore, the the buyer, still the butcher still has the money. In that case, the seller who or the farmer who owns it will have to bring proof. And, and then if he brings proof from my pick and get recollect and then collect the money. That he was never paid to him. Wait a second, but Jude said over here that the uh, the rule is that the buyer has to bring the proof. He's the one that, in, uh, under whose domain the uh, the uncertainty came up. He's the one that is holding the animal. He did shechita on the animal, so therefore um, the buyer should have to bring the proof. So we answer, De'aheb tabachtameh. Oh, you're right. This b'aitah must, we must be assuming that it's only talking about a case where the butcher did pay for the animal. Uh, Therefore, the money is in the hands of the seller. And once this uncertainty arises, it will be the butcher, the buyer, who will have to bring proof to recollect the money that he had already paid. And that is now consistent with the rule of Shemuel according to that it is the buyer who, who has to bring the proof the owner of the of the cow in the case of the cow would have to bring the proof and so it works perfectly well as long as we limit this but to a case where the butcher paid now we ask the same question as above in the opposite direction o my but how the baraita doesn't give any qualification it just says which sounds like it would apply either way whether he paid or didn't pay and then it would be the either either the seller or the buyer So se de mileta kema de layahib inish zuze layahib inish hayvata. Now, if you give a standard case and you don't qualify, well, uh, no one is going to. Uh, give the animal over unless the person pays right that's the that's the general way the sales go as long a person is not given the money the butcher the farmer is not going to give over the animal so therefore in a standard case unless there's some special arrangement and a line of credit uh, these go he is the he is going to pay and only get then get the animal so therefore it's totally fine for the braita to not specify, uh, and you could just give the rule and assume that that means that he paid, and it's the butcher that is going to have to bring the proof to collect, and therefore it is the same principle as Adami uh, Badiyech's uh version of Shemuel that it's the buyer who has to bring the proof. We end with one last clarification on the end of the Mishnah. Chachamim Chachamim said, when can a husband come and claim, oh, I didn't know about uh, this blemish, and therefore this blemish must have uh, taken place uh, before the Kiddushin, and so there's a Kiddushet Ha'ut. He can only say that if it's a hidden one. Uh, but if it's, a, if it's a, um, a visible blemish, then we assume that he saw it, before the kiddushin and was was fine with it, so he can't come and claim afterwards that uh, it's a Amarav Nachman, ki What about not not a not a blemish on the skin, but an epileptic who has seizures? Uh, what is that like? He says it's like a hidden hidden blemish because maybe all the time that he was with her, he never saw a seizure, and so he could say, "Oh, if I knew she had seizures, I would not have gone through with this kiddushin." And it's reasonable. To assume that she has seizure only once in a while, and uh, whenever he went and uh, took her out on a date, she didn't get a seizure. Okay. But this rule of Rav Nachman is only true if she has seizures at regular intervals. Intervals, you know, every day at uh, noon, she she gets a seizure. Uh, Then uh, it's proper to claim that he didn't know about it, because then the family can make sure that. He never comes around uh, at noon, right? He'll tell him, okay, come tomorrow at one, right? So that, that way they will hide the fact that, there, that she has seizures, so then he can claim, I didn't know about it. But if they come at irregular intervals, then it's impossible that at some point when he was uh, there, they, the family would not be able to hide this and that he would have seen the seizure at some point. And therefore, we assume he did know about the seizures and therefore he accepted it. And he cannot change his mind afterwards and said and say, "Oh, I didn't know it was mekachtaut, but it means he accepted it." And then he would have to pay a Ketubah if he still wanted to get divorced. Baruch Adonai leolam. Amen. V'amen.